What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. It's day two of the January 6th hearings, and I'm dying to know what you thought. You know, if you don't listen to the show live, you can always write us at the show's Facebook page or at johnfugelsang.com. I went into this thing today looking for comedy. You know, I'm working on a script called Tyler Perry's Medea Hires Rudy Giuliani, and I just thought I'll get some material. It got depressing really fast, but a lot of inspiring moments. Today's witnesses, I don't know if you noticed this, and I got to thank Mary Trump, friend of the show, the recessive Trump gene who had me on her live stream today. I had no idea it was going to be six hours long, but thank you, Mary. Today's witnesses were 100% Republicans. All the witnesses today were GOP, which means 17 more months of Hunter Biden tweets. But again, witnesses that in no way can be called radical Democrats or never Trump Republicans. I'm dying to know what you guys thought of day two. I would have flipped it because part one was methodically proving that Trump knew he was lying. Part two was methodically proving he was lying. And then at the very end, they revealed the reason he was lying. And it was all about money. And I realized, oh, my God, they know what they're doing. This isn't Lost Season 7. These guys actually know where they're taking this narrative. It's not Rise of Skywalker. He knew an amazing use of multiple interviews of campaign and White House officials about the moment Fox News called Arizona for Biden on election night. Here is Liz Cheney, who, again, is like Dick Cheney. If Dick Cheney told the truth about one thing a lot opening today's hearing with a preview of testimony from people in Donald Trump's sphere who had their opinions ignored for the ravings of Rudy Giuliani. President Trump rejected the advice of his campaign experts on election night and instead followed the course recommended by an apparently inebriated Rudy Giuliani (laughs) to just claim he won and insist that the vote counting stop to falsely claim everything was fraudulent. He falsely told the American people that the election was not legitimate. In his words, quote, a major fraud. Millions of Americans believed him. Inebriated. Is there another kind of Rudy Giuliani? Stop making me like Liz Cheney, please. And I'm sorry because Rudy Giuliani was my sponsor when I was an Alcoholics Conspicuous. But yes, it was so gratuitous. Maybe it was there on purpose to just say he was only listening to the drunk who told him what he wanted to hear. But there was so many references to Rudy being sloshed. It was kind of delightful. We heard from Chris Steyerwalt, former Fox News political editor, who was 
testifying about the call Fox News had on Biden winning Arizona, that it was made unanimously by everybody involved in Fox. All these evil people telling the truth in one day. More Ivanka and Jared testimony. Jason Miller talking about the red mirage, which is what Rudy sees when he gets up in the morning. And of course, Attorney General William Barr testified at length that he knew the claims of stolen elections were, in his words, bullshit. Here he is testifying that Trump's delusion about fraud started immediately on election night. Right out of the box on election night, the president uh, claimed that there was major fraud underway. I mean, this happened, as far as I could tell, before there was actually any potential looking at evidence. And it seemed to be based on the dynamic that uh, that at the end of the evening, a lot of Democratic votes came in, which changed the vote counts in certain states. And that seemed to be the basis for this broad claim that there was major fraud. And I didn't think much of that because people had been talking for weeks and everyone understood for weeks that that was going to be what happened on election night. Okay, so obviously it was fraud on purpose because he wanted to fleece the flock. And again, like the bottom line was Trump was told repeatedly all the way through December by everyone in his circle, his lawyers and his campaign managers, attorney general, everybody except Rudy's drunken band of wing monkeys that the election was not stolen. Imagine if back in the day, if, if, if during Watergate, Barry Goldwater and the Republican leadership went to the White House and visited Nixon to tell him it was time to go, but Nixon chose to listen to the My Pillow guy. And that's what happened here. Then they got to the investigation. Three Republicans testified before the hearings, including B.J. Pack, former U.S. attorney appointed by Trump, which makes me want to pitch my new show about election fraud, uh, B.J. and the bar. But they kept on saying there was no. Cre- I know it's a terrible joke. Only Gen X knows it. It's awful. They kept saying no credible evidence of fraud produced by the Trump campaign. Trump's lawyers lost 61 out of 62 court cases. They kept saying there was no evidence. They went through everything. And Zoe Lofgren, who did a great job presenting today, quoted Judge David Carter, who said this was a coup in search of a legal theory. And and I'm sitting there watching, thinking, why don't why didn't you do the fact that they proved it was all fraud first and then show that Trump knew it was fraud second because they had a payoff. And it was all about how the whole campaign was a grift. They raised two hundred fifty million dollars after the election. They took in one hundred million the first week after the election for the official election defense fund. And the committee discovered there never was an election defense fund. It didn't exist. The money went to Trump's hotels and his own Save America PAC on his bogus lies. They were stealing from these racists right to the end. They did what Mueller didn't do. They followed the money to Trump's pocket. These supporters thought they were donating to an election integrity fund, and instead it went into Donald's fat pockets. Here's Liz Cheney, who I'm tired of liking, pointing out the result of Trump's lies, and it was all a big confidence scam on millions of his undemanding supporters. A2. Mr. Chairman, hundreds of our countrymen have faced criminal charges. Many are serving criminal sentences because they believed what Donald Trump said about the election, and they acted on it. They came to Washington, D.C. at his request. They marched on the Capitol at his request. And hundreds of them besieged and invaded the building at the heart of our constitutional republic. As one conservative editorial board put it recently, quote, Mr. Trump betrayed his supporters 
by conning them on January 6th. And he is still doing it. So the big takeaways, one, wow, Donald Trump's a huge con artist who used this claim of fraud to raise money from his followers. I'm kind of like, if Trump wants to rip off his white supremacist, trickle-down authoritarian douchebag supporters, maybe we should let him continue his fine work. Uh, But also, the other thing was, um, this is something that's going on. It's going to happen again. The nominee for governor in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, still says Trump won. And if he's elected governor, he can choose the person who oversees the Pennsylvania elections. This is fraud in the future. And finally... I feel about these people who testified what I felt about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard in their in their trial. They're all dicks. They're all they they all knew and they all did nothing about it. Bill Barr was up there testifying. He doesn't care. He said the other day he'd vote for this guy again. If Trump was this divorced from reality, then why was the 25th Amendment not considered? Bill Barr is like John Dean from Watergate. If John Dean was a selfish weasel who did nothing for the country after 17 months in a fucking book tour. Bill Barr has covered up more shit than cat litter. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, so I'm so pleased now to uh, shift gears a bit because over the weekend we saw the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. And as they were wrapping, Joe Biden announced a plan to begin to better address migration in the Western Hemisphere, described as bold. So we're especially honored because of that to welcome one of our country's best journalists. Best journalists. Juan Gonzalez. He is the host, the co-host of Democracy Now! with our friend Amy Goodman. He is an award-winning investigative reporter, founder and past president of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. I have listened to this gentleman for years. His deeply acclaimed book, which was made into a film, Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America, now has a second revised and updated edition. And he brings decades of his research to a sweeping history of Latinx culture and uh, experience in the U.S., A book that spans five centuries, from colonization by Europe through the 2020 election. As you know, Latinos are now the largest minority group in the U.S. And the reason there are so many Latinos and people from Latin America coming into the U.S. is because Latin America was the start of the American empire. What a pleasure to welcome the great Juan Gonzalez. Hello, sir. Make sure and, and I'm not on the beach. That's a picture of the, the of a great beach in Vieques, Puerto Rico. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that's actually my wife sitting in a chair over there watching the water. <laughs> I'm a longtime fan, sir. First time suck up. I've listened to you and Amy for a long time. And it's really a pleasure. Your your book has been expanded generously to include um, a much more contemporary Latinx history, uh, like U.S. immigration policy under both 
Presidents Trump and Biden, and of course the over-policing of non-U.S. citizens, how it connects to a whole history of Western colonialism in the region. Before I go deep into it, I, I just want to ask, how are you? How's your family? How are your people during such a, a still uncertain pandemic time? Well, uh, we're all good uh, right now. Uh, we we, ha- we got hit pretty hard by COVID early on in the first few uh, in the first few weeks. Actually, the pandemic. Both my wife and my mother uh, came down with it. My mother was hospitalized. My mo- my wife was in bed for three weeks, but so we sorry. pulled through it. We pulled through it, and uh, uh, and uh, unfortunately, so many other not only Americans but people all around the world have not. But uh, we're soldiering on as best we can. Well, I'm excited to talk about the new edition of your book, but first I have to just get your quick thoughts on the Los Angeles Declaration. It was signed by over a dozen countries in the region, including Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, even though their presidents did not attend the summit. The only Central American country that refused to sign, as you know, is Nicaragua, which was excluded from the gathering by the Biden administration, along with Cuba and Venezuela. What are your thoughts on their initial commitments? Well, I think that uh, the Biden administration talks much uh, better than the Trump administration did about the need to have uh, partnerships and respect uh, between the United States and the other member countries of this hemisphere. Unfortunately, the practice is not doesn't quite live up to the uh, to the words. And uh, there's still this idea uh, that the United States gets to decide who is legitimate and who is not uh, yeah. in the Americas. Uh, and unfortunately, if you're going to have a summit of the Americas, uh, then you need to have a summit of all the countries. Uh, and actually, Cuba had participated in some prior summits of the Americas. That's right. But now uh, the Biden administration decided this time around, Cuba, even after Fidel Castro had died and Raul Castro had had, had left the presidency, that still that Cuba did not meet U.S. requirements. And that's been a problem in Latin America for uh, for about 150 years. And that's why I think for the first time, some uh, Latin American governments, especially Mexico, which is Remember, Mexico is the largest Spanish-speaking country in the world. Yeah, <laughs> it has more population uh, than us uh, than uh, Spain. Uh, so that the reality is that uh, Mexico and some others have stood up and say, "Hey, we've had enough of this. Uh, let's have some respect for all of the member states of uh, of the of the Americas, even if you have differences with them or you disapprove of their policies. Uh, we, uh, if you're going to have a summit, let's everyone sit down at the table together." I mean, after four years of Donald Trump sucking up to dictators from Kim Jong-un to Vladimir Putin, I, I appreciate that they don't want to have the U.S. president talking to autocrats. But then what's he doing with Bolsonaro from Brazil? It was all a bit confounding to me. I mean, and wh- what's what's he doing planning a trip to Saudi Arabia? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's, it, it boggles the mind. But, you know, hey, yeah, who am I to say what the world leaders are supposed to do or not do? <laughs> well, what was it that made you decide it was time to update your book? It got such great acclaim, uh, was made into a doc. What was it that made you decide to go back and actually expand your work? Well, you know, this book, uh, the first edition came out in 2000. So it's over 20 years old. But for some reason, it's it's managed to st- maintain a huge audience, especially in college courses and high schools. And uh, and uh, a lot has happened in the last uh, 10 years since the last uh, re- edition that I revised. And so um, I felt it was time if it was going to stay relevant, uh, not only to have the 
the history, uh, the the roots of the crisis in terms of how, uh, of uh, Latin Americans and the United States, but also update all the the data, the demographics, uh, the political uh, participation, the changes in language and culture. Uh, so uh, I basically have added about 125 pages of new material, uh, but really a lot of it is dealing with what has happened. Uh, in the Latino experience in America uh, over the last 10 years uh, uh, has is the, the bulk of the new stuff in the book. I'd love to ask you about immigration policy, sir, because every presidential election, we have Democrats and Republicans saying what they're going to do about this problem of undocumented immigrants. Or if they're racist, they'll call them illegals. And, and you know, you can have Donald Trump talking about a wall. You can have Ronald Reagan talking about amnesty and open borders, which he actually did. Uh, but I never hear anyone talk about the giant help wanted sign at our border. It seems kind of simple that if if you started arresting all the Americans who do all the hiring and took down the help wanted sign, this simple supply and demand thing would would go away. It's at a point now where I don't trust any politician of any party who talks about illegal immigration without talking about the white folks that are actually hanging that help wanted sign. And And it seems that every couple of years, every administration promises they're going to do something about an orderly flow of migrants into our country. What do you think, sir, is the most pressing issue facing undocumented immigrants in the U.S. today? Well, it's and it's not just undocumented, but it's the whole uh, immigration system uh, that the reality is that we've been needing an overhaul of our immigration system now for decades. Uh, we've been trying <laughs> Uh, since 2006, when George Bush uh, thought he had worked out a deal in Congress uh, to have a, a comprehensive immigration reform, and it collapsed. And then Obama tried uh, again, and Trump made a, a, a partial try. But what has happened is see, the, the real problem is this. Uh, the United States, like most of the other advanced countries in the world, is has been facing now for decades uh, a situation that the people of the Asia, Africa, and Latin America are coming to the West. They've been coming to the West now uh, since uh, really since the end of World War II. And they've gone precisely to the countries that used to be their colonial masters. The reason why there are so many Algerians and Tunisians and Moroccans in France is because those were the colonies of France. The reason there are so many Indians, Pakistanis and Jamaicans in England is because those were the colonies of England. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the, the, uh, so many Turks in Germany because Germany exercised enormous control over Turkey in the Middle East at the early part of the 20th century. And the reason there are so many Latin Americans is that this was where the United States empire was first built. All the great multinational companies started in Latin America uh, and they exploited the region. They recruited people to come work here. And the problem is none of these, the West never expected, all the West wanted out of Asia, Africa, Latin America was resources. Yeah. They never expected the people would come. And now this, as we have gotten into an increasingly international globalized uh, eco uh, economy in the world, the workers are coming too, and they're being driven by in enormous wealth disparities. Yes. So that's why I call my book Harvest of Empire. It's the unintended harvest of the old empires. And now we're confronting how that's changing the very nature of our, of our Western societies. What might a decent and sustainable overhaul of policy look like? Well, first of all, you have to adjust the immigration policy to where the sending countries are. You know, people of often talk, well, the immigrants need to get in line. 
Well, the United States immigration policy proportions a, a particular number of uh, visas to every country in the world, uh, almost on an equal basis. So the waiting line in a place like Mexico to legally come into the United States, it's a 20 year wait <laughs> because there are so many Mexicans that have been coming to the country because obviously part of the country used to be Mexico right. before yeah. the Mexican-American War. Oh, there's yeah. always been a close relationship. Whereas if you go to, let's say, uh, visa applications from uh, from Sri Lanka or from uh, uh, or from uh, Nepal, from other countries, They've got almost the same number of visa allocations as Mexico does. So you have to reallocate the visas to those countries like China and Mexico, where there are many people seeking to come here. If you did that, more people would come legally. So you have to yeah. reallocate the legal uh, visa systems. Uh, the guest worker program system has to be overhauled. Uh, the uh, refugee and asylum system has to be overhauled. In other words, you need a comprehensive and humane immigration policy that meets the needs of the United States in the 21st century. The leaders don't want to do that. Why? Because deciding about who comes legally into the United States, you are also deciding who will be a citizen. That's in right. Five, 10 That's or 15 right. years, who will get to vote in That's five, right. 10 or 15 years. And it's going to really change the nature of U.S. society. And there are forces in this country that don't want to see that change. I remember with Marco Rubio and the Senate Gang of Eight trying to do immigration reform under Obama every night. I saw Sean Hannity on Fox saying this is not amnesty, folks. It's not amnesty. And then they saw the focus groups. And the right-wing white folks who watched Fox hated it. And almost overnight, Sean Hannity began calling it this amnesty bill. I mean, just flipped right away. It's it's heartbreaking. And I, I want to ask about what happened under the Trump administration with the family separation policy announced by Jeff Sessions in 2017. You write in your uh, new content for the book, in June 2018, media reports revealed that U.S. Border Patrol agents had detained hundreds of Latino children inside chain link cages at warehouses in the southern Texas border city of McAllen. The disturbing images of terrified toddlers wailing for their parents provoked worldwide condemnation. Those are images that no one on any side of the political fence could or should ever forget. What has changed since then, Juan, and, and, and what hasn't? Not a whole lot has changed, unfortunately. Uh, th see, the, reducing the migrant flows is very simple. We have to come up with a policy to, to uh, increase the economic levels in Latin America to the point that many people don't feel they have to leave. Uh, and, and I think that, uh, that that's been the big problem that we, for instance, I think President Biden announced the $400 million plan over a few years to uh, uh, help uh, uh, Central America. Uh, there's about 50 million people in Central America in the countries just of the Central American Isthmus. That's more people than in Ukraine. We've given $50 billion, not millions or hundreds of millions. We've given $50 billion this year uh, to Ukraine in military and other assistance. And he's talking about a few hundred million dollars to a, a region about the same population as Ukraine. We need to, cre uh, to help in increase the wage levels. And the wage levels are dictated by our companies that work there, uh, that have factories there. Do you know that there are almost as many automobile assembly workers in Mexico today, mm -hmm. as there are American automobile assembly workers in the United States. In other words, the automobile production center of North America is now in Mexico. It's no longer in the United States. And those workers 
are getting paid $10, $15 a day, uh, you know, or maybe with, with, with benefits $20 a day, uh, as opposed to the wages uh, of, of, of automobile exactly. workers here. And that's how these automobile companies are making so much money uh, by shifting the production to places like uh, Mexico. How much does NAFTA get credit for that, sir? Well, NAFTA gets a huge amount of credit because obviously that allowed uh, the continued creation of these uh, of these special zones, uh, uh, and and uh, it basically incentivized more and more uh, factories to continue shifting their production uh, to uh, to not only well, especially to Mexico, but then there was the uh, the. Uh, uh, the Central American trade agreement that did the same thing for much of Central America. So you have increasingly a lot of the production that used to be here in the United States has gone to uh, uh, south of the border. And then it's gone even further out to uh, Indonesia and Vietnam and uh, Bangladesh and and uh, even more low wage countries, probably with those low wage countries that you also have lots of shipping and supply problems because they're so far away. The great thing about Mexico is that it's right there. Yeah, it's right there. And there are no shipping and supply problems uh, in the, in production in Mexico and Central America. But if people, you know, in America want to complain about undocumented immigration, it would seem that the most direct solution is a decent living wage in Mexico. Absolutely. And I think uh, one of the things that uh, uh, Lopez Obrador did when he became president of Mexico a few years ago was immediately sharply increase the minimum wage. And in fact, what, what people don't realize, and I've documented this in the book, Mexico used to be the main source of migrants, especially undocumented migrants. Mm -hmm. That's no longer the case. Mexico is now the transit place uh, because more and more Mexicans are staying home. Yeah. But it's Central Americans, it's Venezuelans, it's Haitians. Uh, uh, and of course, we saw recently that even Ukrainians figured, well, we'll go into Mexico first and try to get into the United States through, uh, through the Mexican border. So Mexico is no longer the main source of migrants coming here. It's now the desperate peoples of Central America and South America uh, that are passing through Mexico to try to get to the United States. So let me ask then, what do you think that these surges in immigration from Central America, how, how and I know that many of the people coming here from Central America are fleeing the violence of our own drug war, which is still going on in these countries. I've done stand-up shows for the troops in El Salvador and Honduras, and we have troops there because we're still fighting Reagan's drug war. But how do these surges in migrants fit into the larger global dialogue about refugees and asylum seekers? Well, one of the things that is not noted is that many of the more recent uh, uh, migrant surges are caused by climate change. Yes. Right. The, the reality is that Central America in, in the last 10, 15 years has been through some enormous uh, climatic changes. There's a whole area of Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador that's called the dry corridor because the drought there is far greater than what's been happening in California and other places of the West. Uh, and so many people can no longer farm as they used to. Uh, even uh, the the hurricanes and uh, that that have occurred, Hurricane Mitch in 1998 that killed over 12,000 people and and uh, and uh, forced hundred destroyed the homes of hundreds of thousands of people. Hurricane Maria. Now you don't see it with Puerto Ricos. Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, 
But there were several hundred thousand Puerto Ricans that were forced to leave the island of Puerto Rico right. after Hurricane Maria. Uh, and in fact, are still in here in the United States. The only difference is they could come legally because they're U.S. citizens already. But there's been a huge surge of Puerto Ricans, especially into Florida and the South, yep. as a result of climate change. That's what it was. Uh, uh, not only Hurricane Maria, but then the botched uh, rescue and recovery operation that the Trump administration um, uh, uh, ended up uh, performing. Yes, sir. Because Hurricane Maria was the Katrina. Uh, Bush had Katrina and Trump had Hurricane Maria right. as a perfect example of total incompetence. I couldn't agree more. We're going to continue to see climate change drive migration, especially in places like the Middle East. Um, and of course, stimulate a lot of poverty, a lot of scarce resources and inherently a lot of violence. On, on a totally different note, um, in your new introduction to the book, you talk about the use of the term Latinx. And I I got to say, I, I like that you use all three terms. You you say Latinx, Latino, and Hispanic. I, I find indigenous people answer to indigenous American Indian, Native American, and First Nations. Um, why is it that you embrace all three terms? And, and is it necessarily a bad thing to defy easy labeling? Well, I, I think that it's... Uh... None of the terms is really adequately uh, describing what has been happening uh, in the United States, because really, when most migrants come here, they identify with their country of birth and with their home. Uh, and uh, but as as new generations uh, grow up here, uh, you know, as I say, for instance, in uh, in California, if uh, uh, a Mexican migrant marries a Salvadoran migrant and they they have children here. Their children now have a new, different identity. If in New York, a Puerto Rican and a Dominican marry and they have children uh, or in uh, in Florida, if a, if a Cuban and a Venezuelan uh, marry and their children and then their grandchildren. What has happened is as a result of all of the different national groupings within the Latino community, as well as those Latinos who marry outside uh, among African-Americans mm -hmm. or with white Americans, their children develop a new identity, uh, this thing called the Latino in the United States. Uh, and uh, the reality is that uh, all groups go through processes of change in self-identification. If you look at the African-American community, uh, years, years ago, people were referred to as colored, then Negro, and then there were battles over whether Negro should be lowercase or uppercase, right. and then African-American. And, uh, and uh, so there's, there's been a constantly changing, uh, an attempt to define who we are in this constantly changing country. And so what I've said that all of these terms are, uh, they're not exact, but they're all acceptable. Uh, and I don't want to get into intellectual discussions about which is the proper term. Latinx obviously uh, counter counters the, the, the gender binary, and that's important. But when you look at the percentage of Latinos, uh, uh, the Pew Center did a poll back in 2019, only 3 percent of uh, Latinos identified themselves as Latinx and only 23 percent had even heard of the term. Uh, so now that's going to change. <laughs> yeah. And because uh, ethnic identification, like racial identification, is a social construct. It's not it's not something that uh, uh, that is, can be scientifically devised, but that people themselves 
socially construct their identities over time. Right. And the newer generations will continue to do that in the future. So I think uh, I use all the terms interchangeably and I don't get too, too hung up in one or the other. Yeah, it took a long time for African-American to really take hold here in this country. So I, I, it, it's, I would be most remiss if I didn't ask you um, I began our conversation talking about the Summit of the Americas and, of course, the sudden arrival of China as a new economic power on the Latin American stage. What should Americans know about this shifting alliance? Because it's not something we hear too much coverage of. Yeah, we have no no idea the enormous inroads that uh, China has made, not only in Latin America, but in Africa over the last 20 years, while the United States was consumed with its endless wars in uh, in the Middle East and in, uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, and focusing so much attention there and ignoring uh uh, uh, Africa and Latin America, whereas China uh, was continuing to bankroll uh, with its Belt and Road uh, uh, policy, enormous infrastructure pro- projects with very low interest loans, long-term loans, often paid back by uh, th- by these countries through their own uh, uh, mineral resources instead of actual hard cash. Uh, and uh, so China obviously has its own interests. It is a, it is a growing power in the world. It has uh, it, uh, its population uh, has needs uh, for these resources. But the difference is that China is not sending its military to clamp down uh, whenever uh, uh, whenever government doesn't pay back the way it's, it was supposed to pay back. It's not cutting off credit lines or for, or, or, or foreclosing on loans. No. And so it's using a, a velvet glove instead of a, a hammer. And as a result, it's gained a lot of, um, a, a lot of uh, support uh, in Latin America. And more importantly, the region is no longer the U.S. backyard because the leaders have an alternative source of funding or of loans or of infrastructure investment. Uh, They no longer feel that they have to do whatever the United States uh, says. So this has been a major geopolitical shift in Latin America. Uh, The growth of of China building huge dams in Argentina and Brazil and and ports all around the uh, the countries, uh, uh, the main uh, capital cities. Uh, And it's winning a lot of friends without Yep. We here in the United States realizing that. They've been investing in quality of life with our neighbors. Yes, and thinking long-term, not thinking short-term. Well, not what are you going to do for me today? <laughs> you know, what our relationship is going to do for uh, for China in the future. You know, we've only got a minute or so left, but I, I would be most remiss if I didn't ask you, Juan Gonzalez. Um, what are you optimistic about? Well, I'm optimistic about all the young people that continue to to uh, get involved and socially active and not accept the world that we have today and say that a, a better world is possible. Uh, and, uh, and I think that I, I'm constantly energized and, uh, uh, and inspired uh, by the young people who move forward, who don't want to get caught up in all of these racial, uh, racial battles and this hate, but see the, the possibility of saving our planet <laughs> from climate catastrophe uh, and building a, a greater 
social and economic equality. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. I've been a fan for years. I, I've had Amy Goodman on my old TV show, but I've always really admired your work. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And what a pleasure well, to see you. your- it's, it's been my pleasure. Your Zoom background of Vieques is beautiful. Um, the <laughs> book is Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America. This is the second revised and updated edition. Juan Gonzalez, what a thrill to meet you. And thank you for all your great work uh, as the co-host of Democracy Now! Thanks to you. We got to take a quick break. We will be right back with your calls and all the final thoughts you need for the Tuesday that will be. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let me go really quick to Bill in Pennsylvania. Hi, Bill. Thanks for your patience. We're going to get to everybody. Hello. Always a pleasure, John. How is your family doing? Very well, sir. How's yours? Mine's doing well there. You, uh, I'd like to engage you in conversation there as quickly as possible about uh, Louis Armstrong. Okay. Did you know that he got called Satchmo when he was in England there? Did you know that the English called him Satchmo? I never knew that, know that. I never knew that the British gave him the name Satchmo. Yeah, the British gave him the name Satchmo there. But uh, I, I, you're such a intellect when it comes to music there. No, I I'm enjoy not. talking to you about yes, that. Very uh, kind. But but uh, you know the, the my my thing that I focus on more than anything else there is uh uh healthcare there, you yes, know. Sir. And I know they have a, a hearing going on now regarding healthcare there uh with Bernie Sanders and uh uh, you know, Republicans, the, the bastard Republicans there, they, uh, they want to they want to do away with uh, they want to uh, not do away with health care. Not all of yeah, them. They do. They, well, they some do of them. Want they want to. Some of them want to privatize Social Security and they're trying to talk their base into going along with that idea. Bush failed at that. It was the most important thing that Bush failed in doing. But, you, you know, I, I kind of feel like conservatives should be the ones making an argument that single payer health care is the conservative system because it is the cheapest. And it is the one that provides the best coverage. What we have now still makes people bankrupt. And remember, Bill, when Donald Trump ran in 2015, he was the only Republican arguing in favor 
of single-payer health care. By the time he got the nomination, he was calling it socialism. But if you go back and watch the tapes, I watched every one of those debates, he was arguing that none of our capitalist allies want a system like we have where these insurance companies get in between you and your doctor and take all the money. You're, you're correct about that there. I forgot about that there. But that's what uh, that's what I pursue more than anything else and uh we need uh we need health care there yes, that's, sir. That's, i agree that's the thing you know i'm fortunate i got social security there being a a union uh man there but uh you know it's uh, <laughs> i'm with you uh, health care that's 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 the penultimate there well I, i'm with you we're you human beings there i'm a pro-life patriot bill that. I'm a pro-life patriot, and I believe Americans deserve the same access to health care that all of our capitalist allies enjoy, because it is the best system. And I think single payer, they, they've, they've, they've tricked our conservative friends into calling it socialism, but it is the most conservative plan. It is the best coverage for the best cost. I got to run, sir, but I thank, thank you for calling. Thank you. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Milton in Miami, welcome. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Um, thank you. I enjoy your program whenever I could hear it. Thank you. And I want to quickly want to say thank you for bringing uh, Juan Gonzalez. Um, one of the things that uh, I listen to, I'm an uh, XM um, person that I listen to, and it's rare that uh, somebody brings somebody that talks about Latin America, Central America, and stuff. Oh, thanks. I, uh, I'm, I'm Latin America. I've been here for too many years. Well, a lot of years, and I'm going to retire here. And quickly, I want to say that uh, Mr. Gonzalez is correct. Uh, I mean, um, the thing that, mm, I, I mean, I voted for Mr. Biden, but I'm very upset that he, he did not invite uh, Cuba, Nicaragua, and, and Venezuela, and so on and so on. If it's something uh, related with the Americas, Americas is the whole South America, Central America, mm -hmm. and part of the Caribbean. So. Uh, you know, very highly upset. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine that, I guess they think if he had invited them, then the American right wing and the Republicans would have gotten all over him and called him a communist. But when he's willing to sit down with Bolsonaro or the Saudis, he's certainly, you know, I mean, I, I think it can be okay in some cases to talk to dictators, not North Korea, but, um, you know, I, I just, I, I think how much is it hurting America's economic interests long term to pretend Cuba doesn't exist? 
said uh, quickly, I want to say that um, um, one of the few countries that in Latin America, Central America, the only country, the only one that uh, uh, was able to uh, have their vaccine for COVID, it was Cuba. That's right. It was Cuba. It, well, I think one of the reasons I don't think they I don't think they want us knowing how good health care access is in Cuba. Yeah. I sincerely don't think they want Americans to know how much better Cubans have it in terms yeah, of seeing a doctor no, and getting I mean, care. No socialist, whatever. Well, yeah. What I mean, it's, it's not that. I mean, I, you can put a, uh, I mean, put your finger and cover the whole sun just with your finger. Yeah. So, and the same thing with uh, Nicaragua. Nicaragua is one of the few countries that literacy is higher than any other part in South, South America and Central America. And the only country that doesn't import anything. That's right. Milton, we have to hit a break, but I thank you. That is uh, the new president in Salvador that is bringing the country around. I hope so. I've been to El Salvador twice, and it's a beautiful country. We, we have to hit a break. I'm so, so sorry, but I thank you for the call. Please thank call you. us more thank often. You. I'd love to hear from you again. 